We have fed you all for a thousand years You hail us still unfed But there's never a dollar of all your wealth But marks the workers dead We have given our best for to give you rest While you lie on your crimson walls Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this podcast, I have the humble goal of reading through uh, the Library of America, uh, the great catalog of American writers, about 100 pages at a time, while giving my commentary, thoughts, and feelings about the works. Um, Thank you for joining me. Um, In this episode, we are continuing our examination of Frank Norris's The Octopus, um, the first of his planned three-volume study of the life cycle of wheat. In the first three chapters, the first hundred pages, of The Octopus, we were introduced to the people of Bonneville in the San Joaquin Valley, and the struggles they faced by the wheat ranchers and workers of the area. Go back and listen to that episode if you're just joining us. But in short, they're facing the octopus. In other words, the railroad, specifically the Pacific and Southwestern Railroad, which through capricious rates and their control of the land near the railroads, they have the ranchers in a headlock. The Ranchers League, just a group of, of ranchers and landowners in the area, Uh, are committed to using politics to try to improve their situation, even if this means entering into corruption. They want to get the most of what promises to be a bumper crop, Um, yet the railroad also wants their piece of of the good crop, of the good harvest. In Chapter 4, we're introduced to one of the strangest characters in the novel, or we're reintroduced to one of the strangest characters in the novel, the rural mystic Vaname. He had been fired from raising ships because a number of them were killed by a train back in chapter one. There was actually a couple people blamed for this. The first was Delaney for not fixing the fence that allowed the sheep to get in, and then Vanime for being the shepherd. Um, but that's not a problem for a man like Vanime. He just would get a day job working for someone else. In this case, he goes to working for Heron Derrick, the manager of the Los Muertos Rancho and son of Governor uh, Magnus Derrick. This is Magnus Derrick, as his name implies, the closest the region has to a feudal lord. It is all very convenient for the offer because this places Vaname in a position to witness the preparation of the ground for planting. Um, and this description is quite stunning. Um, this is on page 679 of the Library of America version. The plowing, now in full swing, enveloped him in a vague, slow-moving whirl of things. Underneath him was the jarring, jolting, trembling machine. Not a clod was turned, not an obstacle encountered that did not receive the swift impression of it through all his body. The very friction of the damp soil, sliding incessantly from the shiny surface of the shears, seemed to reproduce itself in its fingertips and along the back of his head. He heard the horse hoofs by the myriad crushing down easily, deeply into the loam, the prolonged chinking of the train, trace chains, the working of the smooth brown flasks in the harness, the clatter of the wood hams, the clamping of bits, the click of iron against shoes against pedals, of iron shoes against pedals, the brittle stubble of the surface ground crackling and snatching as the furrows turned, the sorner's steady breath rent from the deep laboring chests, 
strap-bound, shining with sweat, and all around the lines, the voices of men talking to horses. Everywhere there were visions of glossy brown backs, straining, heaving, swollen with muscle, harness streaked with specks of froth, broad, cup-shaped hooves, heavy with brown loom, men's faces red with tan, blue overalls spotted with axle grease, muscled hands and knuckles whitened in the grips of their reins, and on and on and on. It goes on actually for a few pages describing different aspects of the planting, the machines that are there, the horses, the men at work, the plows, the transformation of a barren land into a receptacle for wheat. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Throughout the novel, we, we, we have the story of those ranchers, but we also have the story of a harvest um, and the maturation of a crop. And, and it works quite well. Now, work done, Vanamy begins to brood, brood over his lost love, Angele. He eventually goes to a church and speaks with Father Saria, who's a local holy man. Um, Saria knows of Vanamy's trauma and has been trying to sell him on an idea that he'll be simply reacquainted with Angela in the afterlife. So this, this becomes kind of a typical uh, Christian message for, for mourners. Vanamy, though, has his doubts. He pulls out the old canard, the problem of evil. Since there's no answer to this problem, and Serbia simply can't really come up with one, he accuses Vanamy of petulance. He gives up talking to the priest, and he goes to visit Angela at her grave. This entire section is a bit... Um, out of the field of the whole novel. We are in a novel about ranchers and their economic problems. And we occasionally, through this character Vanamy, get thrust into the internal torment of this day laborer. As we'll see later in the novel, Vanamy is the only character who can seem to ride the disasters that affect the lives of everyone else in the valley. Even the, the winner is a loser in the end, and we'll get to that probably in the final episode of, of, this, of this series on the octopus. Vaname, living with so much torment from a lover 16 years dead, knows the world is really without hope. Uh, he knows that there's really no hope in the next harvest, and the next harvest will just lead to the next planting and the next harvest. Um, even the next revolution is just kind of a recycling of old ideas. So he has this very cyclical idea of, of life. Um, but there's something more here. The entire novel is about the impersonal forces that afflict us whether it's the railroad, whether it's nature, whether it's just capitalist economics um, or whatever. And we're helpless in the face of these forces. At least that's Norris's argument here. And this is given a cosmic context in Vanamy's story. At first, he had been content to, uh, with merely a wild, unreasoned cry to heaven that Angele should have been restored to him. But the vast egoism that seemed to run through all forms of disordered intelligence gave his fancy another turn. He forgot God. He no longer reckoned with heaven. He arrogated these powers to himself, struggled to be in his own unaided might, stronger than death, more powerful than the grave. He had demanded of Saria that God should restore Angela to him, but now he appealed directly to Angela herself. As he lay there, his arms clasped around her grave. She, started, she seemed so near to him that he fancied she must hear. And suddenly, at this moment, his recollection of his strange, compelling power, the same power by which he had called Presley to him halfway across the Kian Sabe ranch, the same power which had brought Saria to his side that very evening, reoccurred to him. Concentrating his mind upon the one object with which he had so long been filled, Vaname, his eyes closed, his face burned in his arms, exclaimed, Come to me, Angele, don't you hear? Come to me. But the answer was not in the grave. Below him, the voiceless earth lay silent, moveless, withholding the secret, jealous of that which it, had, which it held so close in its grip 
refusing to give up that which had been confi confined into his keeping, untouched by the human anguish that, above there on the surface, clutched with despairing hands at the grave long made. The earth that only that morning, the earth that had only that morning been so eager, so responsive to the lightest summons, so vibrant with life, now at night, holding death with it in its embrace, guarding inviolate the secret of the grave, was deaf to all entreaty. Refused to answer, and Angela remained as before only a memory, far distant, intangible, and lost. So in other words, Vanime's effort to, to kind of let the, have the earth give up the spirit of Angela is a failure, and he cannot will it. Uh, death is simply beyond his capacity to, to reason with or to negotiate with. And this is like the truth of all the forces we, the characters experience in the, in the novel, particularly the railroad. Chapter 5. This chapter focuses on our hero, Buck Annixter. The most pressing issue facing him is preparing for the purchase of the lands owned by the PNSW Railroad that he's currently squatting on, um, or maybe leasing a little bit. I, I Actually, I don't think, I may have said they were leasing in the last episode. Looking back at it, I don't think they're leasing it because that would have accepted the claim of the railroad to own it. I, I think they're essentially squatters on this land. He meets Hilma Tree, the young woman who had been attached, he'd been attracted to, and he's starting to warm on his position of bachelorhood just a little bit. She sows him some of her dairy operations, and she runs a dairy on his on his ranch, and Annixter uses the opportunity to try to kiss her. She turns away from his advances, and Annixter, embarrassed, uh, leaves, recommitting himself to stay away from people he calls females, spelled F-E-E-M-A-L-E-S. He goes to speak to Hooven, Annixter goes to speak to Hooven, the tenant, uh, one of the tenants of the Los Muertos Rancho, and we learn some of his background in Germany and why he came to America. You may be tempted to skip some of this section since it's all written in this broken English and it's heavily accented. And if you're like me, when you get to those sections, it's sometimes easier just to skip by. But um, if you have an audiobook version or if you just kind of grit through it, it's really an important section. Because here we learn that Hooven sees himself as an American, especially since the birth of his younger daughter, Hilda. And I guess I'll, I'll give it a try. America? I don't know, returned the other insistently. That's my home yonder. That's my Vaterland. All von we Germans just like that. Germany, that's hell of some fine place, sure. But the Vaterland is where the home is and where the wife is and kinder is. Eh? Yeah? Vad? Ach, no. Um, and I'll kind of give up trying here. Um, it's on page 617 of the, of the version I'm reading. Um, anyways, he says essentially that home is, is where the heart is. Um, home is where the family is. And he's calling America home. He's calling the San Joaquin home. He goes to talk business. Annixter goes to talk business about the league and their strategy against the railroad with Heron Derrick. Annixter wants Heron to talk to his father about going in more deeply in support of the League. The governor, uh, Magnus Derrick, has a moral reservations against bribing officials. And at the public meeting, the more public meeting of the of the League, he said, no, we're, you know, I'll, I'll help the League, but I'm not going to bribe. I'm not going to corrupt the elections. But on the other hand, there's there's a track here, a trick here, because although he doesn't want to go in on the bribing, He's going to benefit if the bribes are successful. So there's also a moral argument on the other way that he has to go in with his with his colleagues as part of the league. 
Annixter goes on to Bonneville and pits a, picks a fight with Ruggles, the employee at the PNSW land office. Annixter wants to buy the land right away at $2.50 an acre, which is what the land they've been squatting on, because that's what they were promised by the railroad. Ruggles implied that the price has not been set. Annixter then lectures Ruggles about the rancher's position, and it's a good reminder of, of what the rancher's position is on this whole land issue. I'll tell you, I don't want your cursed opinion. I want ownership. And it's the same with Magnus Derrick and old Broderson and Osterman and all the ranchers of the county. We want to own our land. We want to feel we can do as we blame please with it. Suppose I should want to sell Kiansabi. I can't sell it as a whole till I've bought till I bought from you. I can't tell anyone with clear title. The land has doubled in value ten times over since I came on it and improved it. It's worth easily twenty an acre now. But I can't take advantage of that rise in value as long as you won't sell me. So long as I don't own it, you're blocking me. Uh, so that's Annixter's position on the land ownership. He's improved it. The value in the land is due to him, to him working the land, to him, um, you know, building things on it. In fact, in the next chapter, we're going to see a barn dance celebrating the building of a barn, the symbol of these improvements made by the ranchers. The railroad's position, though, is it's not unreasonable. It's that, you know, they got this land, they developed the land by building the railroad. The San Joaquin Valley land, the ranches there would not be as valuable as they are if not for the, the railroad being there. Um, now Dyke comes in. Dyke's a, a kind of a fired rail engineer. And he's going in, he's, he's gone into hop farming. Uh, he's heard about that going to be a good crop. The crop in Germany failed or something. So he gets involved in that. Uh, and he goes in to check the freight prices for hops. And he's quoted a price of two cents a pound. Now Dyke does the math in his head, and he figures this will ensure a prosperous year. Um, now, he's still trusting the railroad. Unlike uh, Now, other people warned him, don't trust the railroad. Make sure you have you know, a firm commitment on freight prices for the harvest time. But he trusts the railroad, even though um, he was kind of screwed by them. He scabbed for them during a strike. And after the strike, the, the railroads lowered the wages, and he refused to work for lower wages. He even argued, well, I scabbed for you. I helped you win the strike. And the railroad still paid him, lower, you know, offered him lower wages. So he quit, got involved in this. But he's still on the fence. And we'll come back to this character uh, in a later episode. He returns to, his, to the Kiansabe ranch, his ranch, and tries to make up with Hilma. He awkwardly tries to get Hilma to confess she likes him, but it doesn't work. And it, it's kind of funny to watch him struggle. Um, Annexer's the kind of guy, it seems, never had a date or never really knew how to deal with, um, talk to women. And he's pretty awkward about it when he's dealing with Hilma, who he's slowly but surely falling in love with. At the end of this chapter, we get this beautiful, beautiful summary of the situation, starting with Hilma and branching out to the entire ranch. Um, and we get a kind of a, this bird's eye view of the entire county. Uh, it's the last few pages of chapter five. I'm not going to read it all, but we're I probably won't even read any of it, I guess, but it's really a great thing that you can look at, and um, this panoramic, and it's something Norris is quite good at in this book, is just presenting this this bird's eye view of the whole region and the people there and the and the forces affecting them. I mean, that's the major theme of the novel. It's just the helplessness of this whole community uh, in the face of these external forces. Chapter three. This is the last chapter of, of book one of the Octopus. Uh, it, it's a lot of fun. Um, everyone starts out this chapter in pretty good spirits. Uh, Dyke is assured that he'll make money from his hops. The wheat ranchers are cautiously optimistic that they'll have a good year. 
Annixter is celebrating a barn raising with a with a barn dance. Um, now he's not the kind of guy who probably um, values community as much as someone like Magnus Derrick, who sees himself as a feudal lord. Annixter is more of a of a, of a capitalist. I, I'm thinking of Ahab and Starbuck actually when I see these characters. Starbuck was the practical capitalist on um, the Pequod, while Ahab had more lofty ambitions and ideas about. Um, why he's why they're in, in the whaling uh, the whaling trip in that book Moby Dick. Here, Annixter is very businesslike. Yeah, I mean, he, even when he was arguing why he should, has a moral right to the land, he's interested in selling it. He's interested in making a profit from his improvements. Yet, he still has a duty to the community, and he has a duty to to follow its customs. One of which is this barn raising, barn dance. Annexer is even happy enough to take another stab at Hilma Tree, essentially confessing that uh, she has single-handedly made him change his mind on women. She dampers his confession by mentioning again her friendship with uh, the former ranch hand of Annexer's Delaney. He fired him in a previous chapter. Largely, he fires him because he's jealous about Hilma. The barn dance takes place, and it's all good fun. There's plenty of drink in the entire area tends. Dykes, I think the only character here who, who doesn't drink, he, he's a teetotaler and refuses drink. Um, but everyone else is drinking and Annixter brings in the, the punch. Um, there's dance, there's a band playing music. Uh, Hilma is like the life of the party. She gets dances from all the men and she feels absolutely beautiful. Uh, she talks about how beautiful she feels and how happy she feels to have these boys um, chase her. Annexter, she even kind of gets Annexter a bit jealous by asking him, well, where's my, where's my boy, you know, the, my, my dance partner. But even in the end, Annexter gets his dance with Hilma, making him happy. All this, though, is disrupted by Delaney, who's sore about being fired earlier in the novel, and he comes armed and, uh, and drunk. But Annexter is ready for him, and after kind of a, a gunfight of sorts, they start shooting at each other. The situation is resolved, and the party can go on. Um, so even Delaney coming doesn't isn't able to, do, to disrupt the party. It, it kind of um, is a nice little entertainment. The real damper, though, on the party comes at the end when letters are delivered. And they seem timed perfectly just to ruin everyone's day. Uh, these letters are offered are offers to the ranchers to buy the land that they're leasing or squatting on. Instead of the promise $2.50 to $10 an acre, uh, and that $10 was only cited for valuable wooded land. Most of the land would have according to the original promise, would have been offered for $2.50 an acre. Instead, the PSW is charging up to $30 an acre. In fact, charging Annixter the most. I think they realized he was a big troublemaker uh, in the league. The railroad also opens up sale to, any, to anyone. And this is another kind of blow because the original promise is that the, the, the squatters, the ranchers would have right of first refusal on this land. Um, but instead, the land is opened up to sale to anyone. Now, this is a more serious threat because now the railroad is in a position to set up dummy buyers, allowing them to essentially steal the land from the ranchers, um, get people to buy the land in their name, but actually the money comes from the railroad. Um, this forces the ranchers um, from the land. In a fury, the ranchers vow to organize uh, more direct resistance, and we'll see in part book, book two, this actually involves organizing a militia. They declare Magnus Derrick their president. Vanime, who though, who's watching all this, observes that there was also a dance before Waterloo. So knowing that just because um, they organize, they're not going to necessarily be victorious. 
So part one of The Octopus ends on a down note, but we can still have hope that the ranchers can unite and fight off the railroad. In general, this part of the novel is really about the impersonal forces that determine our destiny. Um, we get in the opening part of the novel just the necessity of planting, the earth taking in the seed, uh, the labor that goes into that. You get Vaname realizing that his will, whether it's religious or spiritual, is not enough to restore his, his, the love of his life, um, that the earth moves on. Um, we get uh, Annixter, who's falling in love out of no will of his own. That's against his will. We have Annixter putting on this barn dance because it's the will of the community. It's the will of the culture he's a part of. And we finally get the railroad showing that it is in real control of the lives of these ranchers. The clearest example of this is the railroad. But we have all these other examples presented along the way from God to love. We even have Hooven finding a new home in America. And pre he's presenting it as really not his choice either. That, that, you know, this is where his wife is, where his family is, where he's, this has become his home. So even our identity, our homeland is not our own choice. So that's the theme of the novel uh, at this point, especially. Now, much of this section is also setting up us up for larger plot points in the second half of the novel. But it is a really enjoyable section. It's full of fun moments, and I really loved it. And I really enjoyed in this section the panoramic views we get, whether it was of the, of the planting or of, of kind of anime's internal conception of, of, of time and the universe and, and life and death, um, or Annixter kind of getting a once-over of the whole, whole view, or the whole community coming together in a, in a barn dance. These are all really wonderful moments and really memorable. And I think if you read this novel, you will... Um, take a lot away from this section. So, so that's going to do it for this episode, uh, part two of The Octopus. Uh, we'll have three more episodes on this book as we um, spend some time patiently, you know, understanding these characters and understanding this really, this masterpiece of, of a novel. Uh, one of my favorites from this period of American history. Um, so that's it. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please uh rate or subscribe uh, or share it with people you know. I really want to get this podcast growing. I'd like to make this a long-term commitment, but it's going to need help from audiences um, to, to do that. Had you all for a thousand years That was our doom, you know From the days when you chained us in your fields To the strike a week ago You have taken our lives and our jobs and our pride And called it your legal share But if blood be the price of your lawful wealth